Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Stick Together is produced at 3CR Studios in Melbourne, a city built on the unceded lands of the Kulin Nation, those of the Rwandri people to the north and east, and Bunwurrung people to the south and west. So-called Australia was colonised and prospered on the theft and dispossession of First Nations people. This recognition is especially relevant today, as the nation grapples once again with how to confront its true history and deliver justice for ongoing crimes. 3CR is an ardent supporter of Indigenous land justice. This year also marks the 50th anniversary of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in Canberra. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. G'day, you're listening to Stick Together on 3CR and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Stick Together is the only national program dedicated to union news, workers' stories and social justice. I'm Jackson McInerney. Today, we'll be talking with Sarah Hathaway, a journalist and industrial organiser in the allied health sector, about the continuing challenges presented by the Omicron variant. First up, though, some union news. As the Omicron wave surges across so-called Australia's eastern seaboard, South Australia and the Northern Territory, policy measures for frontline workers have radically shifted. Isolation times are shortened, PCR tests are less available, and workers are expected to arrange a personal supply of rapid antigen tests, or RATs, for use on a regular basis. The list of essential workers has been expanded to include a wide array of industries. When those workers are close contacts of confirmed cases, they are now advised to still attend work if asymptomatic and testing negative on a rapid antigen test kit. They must take these rats twice a week while continuing to work. It is important to note that workers cannot be coerced into attending work after a confirmed close contact. Both employer and employee must agree. Additionally, many workers are encouraged to wear high-end N95 PPE masks, but supply of these masks is not guaranteed to workers. The now essential rats are in critically short supply for the general public and can cost more than $15 per test, meaning a household of four needs around $120 a week to test each family member twice. In schools, Victoria and New South Wales have adopted a policy that all students and staff be tested twice weekly, with rats provided by the relevant state governments to schools. This rollout is in its early stages. Victorian students' regime of two weekly tests is a voluntary one. In South Australia, classroom close contacts, staff and students alike, can return to school immediately while asymptomatic, but must return seven consecutive days of negative rat tests. Despite this seven-day testing regime, South Australians are only eligible for two rats per close contact under current policies. Exact requirements vary from state to state, with a national approach for return to school unable to be agreed upon, despite National Cabinet meeting late last week. And that's what we have time for in news. You're tuned in to Stick Together on 3CR and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Jackson McInerney. The Omicron wave of coronavirus is wreaking havoc around the nation. 
Today on Stick Together, we're lucky to be joined by Sarah Hathaway, who's an industrial affairs reporter for Greenleft Weekly, as well as a union organiser within the health sector and a national co-convener of Socialist Alliance. Sarah, thanks heaps for speaking to Stick Together today. Hi, Jackson. Thanks for having me. So there have been some significant changes to health advice across the country since the Omicron wave began to swell in late 2021. There's shorter isolation periods, far less access and even recommendation to PCR testing and rapid antigen antigen testing of questionable efficacy and serious undersupply. And all these changes, alongside the highest case numbers ever recorded in Australia, I wonder, Sarah, what's the feeling among rank and file health workers from the research that, from conversations that you've had recently? Yeah, well, it's been a pretty terrible two years for healthcare workers. I kind of feel like, you know, the frontline healthcare workers have been the canary in the coal mine that have been saying it's bad, it's bad, now it's really bad. And then it just keeps getting worse. And so what we've seen just prior to Christmas and just after the Christmas New Year period, it's just, it's staggering. Like, I just honestly don't, I just don't think any of us saw us getting to this situation, especially the the eight-hour queues. The recent thing we've seen in Victoria, I think with 100,000 tests being dumped, you know, we can understand how we've gotten to this position. So I guess there's that level of understanding, but also I think just also shock um, that it's gotten so bad and both state and federal governments have let it have let it deteriorate to this point. Yeah, I'd say it's it's been quite similar in that in the health space too, just that frustration all the way through, the sense that the there isn't a plan, and to be honest, there hasn't been a plan um, when there needed to be. So, yeah, I guess it, it's just a reflection of that broader failure to mm. plan and be prepared for the pandemic. Especially after so long to get prepared and with, as you say, regular warnings. I haven't actually heard that story about, <clears throat> excuse me, 100,000 test results being dumped. Is that What's yeah. the story about that? So uh, in Victoria... Under the Andrews government, this is going sort of back a few years ago, they privatised a lot of our pathology services. So whilst we do still have some public pathology labs, we've been heavily reliant on private pathology all the way through the pandemic. Um, And they have been probably the nicest thing I can say is extorting um, the government to get their fair share of cash out of this process. Um, But as a result, they got completely overwhelmed um, in the lead up to all that testing for Christmas, people wanting to go into state. They had flagged it with the government, nothing was done, and they just got a massive backlog. And um, my understanding is that if you don't process samples within within a certain amount of time, um, it's an ineffective sample. Um, And the backlog was so great, they effectively had to chuck out 100,000 samples And I've just read today that anyone who had their sample chucked out, even if they were positive, they were sick, um, they couldn't attend work for that period, they're not going to get the the, um, Centrelink support payments because they don't don't have a test to confirm that they were positive at that time. So just another failure, really. Mm, And more 
you know, everyday working people left in the lurch. So yeah. these are organisations like Foresight Pathology and Capital Pathology, all those, the, all the referrals that we get when we go to the doctors whenever we need blood work done or anything. They've set up some of the drive-through centres as well. Yeah. Yeah. I, I hadn't heard of the of the massive dumping, but even with the queues and the delay in time uh, for a lot of people, like I've, I've heard a lot of anecdotal reports of people getting tested and not receiving their results for eight, nine, ten days once the symptoms have subsided. So, from what you're saying, they too wouldn't be eligible for that for what little government support still remains. Um, I was interested there in what you said too that it's very much. I think there's been you know, a decent and perhaps a lasting amount of coverage of the federal government's failings so far. But what what do you think here, alongside the privatisation of the um, pathology services, what other mistakes do you think the Andrews government has made in the recent recent history? Yes, well, it's in Victoria, like that, like you say, there has been a lot of criticism of the federal government and there are things that they had responsibility for at a national level that they haven't taken responsibility. And I'm sure we could come up with a long list of, you know, coordinating the vaccine rollout, funding health from a federal level, quarantine, yada, yada, yada. But um, at a state level, the, the states are responsible, I guess, for the, the structure of our health system, how it's supported, the bureaucracy supporting it, all that kind of thing. So in Victoria, we have this unfortunate hangover from the Jeff Kennett years where our public health service is around about 83 separate health services each health service has their own ceo their own board so it's a very devolved system um and it has just felt like all the way through the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing um even where the department of health puts out guidance and to be fair they have put out guidance on employment related matters and how to pay various support allowances and how to do a code brown and all these things but trying to then get that out to 83 different hospitals down through the ceo to then all the department managers has just in practice been a total failure um and so i guess you know the criticism of the andrews government is yes kennett created this mess um but you know, they had been in government for over a full term and it didn't feel like there'd been any moves to kind of to fix the structural problem, um, let alone the chronic understaffing uh, as well. So I'm kind of based in the allied health area um, and we had chronic understaffing before COVID mm. um, and COVID's just made it worse. And, you know, I know it's the same for the nurses and the paramedics as well. Mm. Yeah, so it sounds a little bit like some of the problems we've seen at a federal level with the lack of a national plan, whether it comes to quarantine or isolation times or vaccine rollout. But, it, you know, when you, you know, there's, you know, seven or eight states and territories, 83 different bodies that you're trying to manage, it kind of seems like that problem on steroids. You touched on the cold bra- the code brown there, sorry, um, which happened in both metropolitan and regional Victorian health services last week on January 18th. Um, and it's set to be in place for four to six weeks. What does that mean for, for health workers and the broader health infrastructure? 
Yeah, it was interesting because how how the Code Brown was reported in mainstream media wasn't entirely accurate. Um, so there was a lot of reporting in the mainstream media that Code Brown would allow health services to cancel or revoke leave um, or bring healthcare workers back from leave. Um, and, of course, that raised a very, a very big red flag for us. Um, and, you know, we had a meeting with our industrial staff to go just like, oh, my God, is our enterprise agreement out the window now? Like, what are we doing as union officials if we can't enforce our agreement? Mm. Um, so our understanding at this point um, is that our agreement comes under Commonwealth legislation and the Code Brown is state-based. So as a general rule, Commonwealth trumps state-based um, legislation. Um, and there's been nothing demonstrated to us either from the, the government or from health services that they do have an authority to override our agreement. Um, so as you can imagine, there's been a fair bit of stress there among healthcare workers. It, you know, they understand it's a crisis, but also... We've been in two years of crisis, um, two years of people not taking leave, getting to excess leave, and it, it just started to get to the point where people were just like, no, that's it, like I need to take two to four weeks leave for my own sanity, even if I'm sitting at home. Um, and that message that went out of we're just going to wholesale revoke everyone's leave um, did create a bit of stress. Um the good news is that we're starting to see from some of the major metropolitan hospitals, um, they're sending out the message that we don't, that they don't have plans to be revoking people's leave at this point. Um, and I think they've received um, some legal advice, so they know that they don't actually have um, a leg to stand on if they were to try and uh, cancel leave. But, you know, we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's really interesting because there has been a lot of yeah, anecdotal reports flying around of um, nurses and doctors and various people within the, particularly the hospital system told to hold off booking booking leave. And you touched on there the staff shortages that existed in Allied Health even before the pandemic hit. We've also uh, read reports from job walk-offs in South Australia, particularly some hospitals in Adelaide and also in Tasmania, staff walk it, walk, uh, walking off the job uh, due to chronic staff shortages and worker exhaustion was, was the cited re reasons. I wonder how the union is thinking and strategizing to represent the very real needs of their workers at the moment against this extremely high expectation from the public that these industries deal with this health problem is it you know people are very quick to to jump on talkback radio and give shout outs to nurses and doctors but the idea of them saying you know what this is too hard or this has been totally mismanaged and we need to take a stand through sanctioned industrial action you know, it's the same in other industries too, like childcare and education. There's this, there's this real tension between public expectation and worker need. What's your kind of take on all of this at the moment? How will that be negotiated if this does indeed get worse? 
Yeah, for me, I kind of feel like there was a Simpsons meme that really summed up what you just said about um, one of the characters from The Simpsons shoveling coal, but it was like, we need more healthcare workers and they're shoveling more healthcare workers into the furnace because <laughs> honestly, that's what it feels like. Um, you know, in 2020 in Victoria, we had over 4,000 healthcare workers contract COVID at work. Um, in 2021, it was over 5,000, and that was after we improved PPE. Um, and, you know, I have to say the biggest thing I cannot stand is the media and the government referring to healthcare workers as heroes because they've been treated absolutely appallingly all the way through, um, and it's just so hypocritical um, to pat them on the head and give them a cookie or a free coffee and call them heroes. But, you know, we're not going to give you proper PPE or we're going to revoke your leave or whatever it is. So um, the union that I work for, we have taken industrial action over the last period um, in the private sphere. Um, and I think it's it's been easier to do that in a way um so we we've got coverage in private medical imaging and that's been a really difficult area for our members because it's been this tap on tap off of well when we need you we need you um but when we don't need you we're going to start reducing everyone's contracted hours um you know there were a whole lot of shenanigans I've, a lot of them have been claiming job keeper when we had job keeper um yeah just um just being really dismissive of their staff and so some of those larger companies they've proceeded to industrial action um and it did sort of get to a point where we said oh you know how are you just checking how are you guys feeling like do we need to put this on hold do you do you want to go back and they just said no nah, we've had enough like you know these companies are profiteering um through this health crisis and um you know, sorry to swear on your program, but they just, they don't give a shit about their staff. Um, public sector is harder. Like, I'm, I'm generalising here. Obviously, everyone feels quite differently and there's varying levels of anger um, among our members. Um, but there is this really, I guess, strong manipulation um, because we are relying on the public sector to respond to COVID um our members are being redeployed all over the place so we're backing up icu we're backing up healthcare in the home for covid patients in the home um so a lot of our members aren't even where they would normally be mm. in a hospital situation they're not necessarily with their colleagues they would normally be with um and that's Underta been on and off undertaking new tasks as well with probably quite, quite quick training periods i imagine yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So, um, and the other thing overlaying this for us is we're also in public sector bargaining. <laughs> so, yeah, like on one hand, I feel like a lot of cards, we're, we're holding a lot of the cards, um, but also trying to balance that with lockdowns. So we've been putting a lot of things off because while we're in lockdown, people aren't going to be marching down the street anyway. Um and public perception because, as you say, even if we got members on side to go down the path of, of a protected action ballot and proceed to industrial action, what would that look like? What are members prepared to do? But are we going to get any public support from that? Um, so nothing's ruled in or out. 
um, at this point. Um, but yeah, it's a very fine line to walk. Um, and we're also conscious too that our, our members are exhausted. They're just utterly burnt out. Um, so, you know, you can get to a certain point of being angry and then you just like tip over the edge to like, I've got nothing left mm. anymore. Um, so yeah, that, that's a pretty heavy factor as well. On that note of, um, yeah, how workers themselves are feeling. There's been some calls from various unions, uh, the TWU, the UWU, uh, for mass delegates meetings. I just wondering, uh, what would that look like, and and how do you think that would help, perhaps, um, reshape, or you know, crystallise what unions should be doing over the next month or so? Do you think that's yeah. a good call? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So in my, I guess. Um, personal capacity, I definitely support the call for mass delegates meetings um, and, you know, cross-union, cross-delegate, um, cross-industry meetings. Um, you know, I would like to see feet on the street. I think we've had two years of sitting at home um, and largely because we had to because of lockdowns. Um, I feel like we have conceded a fair bit of space to the far right Um who have got into our unions and, you know, are recruiting, getting in the ears of workers and recruiting them. Um, so, you know, it feels like if not now, it's never going to happen. Um, and it, it's, it's going to take a bit of a push to do that. Um, so, you know, particularly for your listener base, for rank and file members, for delegates, and I think I put this in my piece um, for Green Left as well, is that we really need to start asking the question, what are we doing? What are we doing as a union? What are we doing as an industry? And what are we doing as a movement um, for some action? And, and when can we have a mass members meeting? Like just keep asking those questions because, um, you know, sometimes, um, and, and I say this as someone employed by a union, um, sometimes you do, need to, you do need to put the pressure on your officials. Um, and also send a message to the, to your officials and, and your union staff that we are keen, we're ready to have this fight. You call the meeting, we'll be there, we're ready for a campaign. Um, so I think that's really important to send. There's a particular issue that I've heard a lot of, you know, anger, frustration and just refusal to go along with, which I think is, you know, one of the interesting aspects here, like, a lot of the industries we're discussing, these you know, so-called essential workers, the workers on the front line, like people who are attracted to do this work, they do really care about their fellow human beings. That's often why they're in the line of work. But there is a line, and I think we've seen a lot of you know, you know, real gal a, galv a galvanization, if that's even a word, but people being galvanized around this idea that <clears throat> in certain industries, I think they've named hospitals. Uh, schools, childcare, some logistics, some warehousing. They should even attend work, even if they are a household close contact of a confirmed case. As long as they remain asymptomatic, they should continue going to work. What do you think a position like that says about the government's priorities in managing this pandemic? Well, I think it's interesting those areas that you've named are caring professions and heavily female dominated um and again it just you know teaching healthcare, social and community services 
it is so emotionally manipulative of what about the patients? What about the kids? What about the clients? You know, you're there for them. Um, put yourself last. Um, so it's, and I, I understand, like I understand people go into these professions because they want to do good and they care about the communities that they're serving and looking after or educating. Um but we've also got to get that message out that, you know, as a healthcare worker or an educator, you are the tool. Like mm. without you, there is no health service, there is no education. So if we're not looking after, if they're not looking after themselves, well, then there is no education, there is no healthcare. Like the whole system will just collapse. Um, yeah, so it's it's quite difficult having those discussions with members and and they know it they do they they do understand it but then you go back into that environment that is so um it, you know emotionally taxing and manipulative at times you just yeah you just get sucked back into it but you wish the government would be doing more to protect the tools the reason that these thing these wonderful services are able to function which are the workers at the heart of it and you know i would say that a policy like that like just go to work even when you're you know almost certain to be infected or possibly infect your workmates possibly infect the people you're caring for it just seems like head in the sand like this this focus on keep the economy running at all costs but you need workers to run the economy and if everyone's sick i mean we can look to the uk as an example where they had a similar kind of let it rip mentality and the labor shortages you know across industries have had some really you know staggering outcomes like having to slaughter whole you know annual herds of pigs because you don't have the abattoir workers to to butcher them or or something like that so yeah i just i just wonder whether there's even some hesitancy particularly in, in victoria and queensland to refuse government policy or challenge yeah. government policy when the government is nominally a union friendly government do you think do you think that's playing a role at all yeah, so, yeah, I mean, I can only sort of speak from the Victorian perspective, um, but I know that all the health unions here are very strongly pushed back on um, the exemptions for healthcare workers where you're a close contact um, to go back. Um, and um, my union put out a public statement putting the boots right in and, and condemning any moves um, for exemptions for healthcare workers. Um, and that's the message we're sending to members. Our advice is stay home. Like, it is not worth the risk um, to, to yourself and your colleagues to go back into work, um, you know, despite the code brown, despite everything else, just stay home. Um, obviously, the government's proceeded anyway. Um, we've already heard, I think there was a nurse that rang into Raph Epstein the day after um, the changes had come in basically saying she felt coerced to come back into work um, as a close contact. So even though they've put provisions around like it must be by agreement and we're not going to force you, um, we know that this coercion um, is going to occur. So, you know, if I just I just go back to that Simpsons meme again of like we're just cogs in a wheel, just shovel more in, keep it running, um, but we know the irony of that is that's going to um, worsen the situation. So rather than having 10% of the workforce sitting at home, it'll be 15% of the workforce sitting at home. Um, 
Yeah, so I think is it um, Jim Jim Stanford from the Center for Future Work wrote a really great piece analyzing all of this. But you know, the crux of it is that healthy economies need healthy workers. Um, yeah. Hmm. Now, our guest today also wrote a great piece, which I will recommend uh, our listeners go and check out. If you go to greenleft.org.au. Uh, and search for Sarah Hathaway. Uh, the article is Workers' Safety Should Not Be Sacrificed for the Sake of the Economy. Definitely worth having a read. And Sarah, thanks heaps for talking to Stick Together today. No worries. Thanks, Jackson. You've been listening to Stick Together, wishing you a combative invasion day and a respectful survival day. Tune in next time. And remember, whoever you are, whatever you do, there's a union for you. So stick together. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.